From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. Religion for Life explores the intersection between religion, social justice, and public life. I'm thrilled today to welcome friends listening to Religion for Life in Lincoln, Nebraska, Nebraska's only independent community radio station broadcasting from the heart of downtown Lincoln. 89.3 KZUM now carries Religion for Life Saturday afternoons at 1 o'clock. Welcome, 89.3 KZUM. We're making an effort to get Religion for Life on more radio stations. Go to religionforlife.com for information about how to hear Religion for Life on your favorite station. It is a program free to stations and most certainly worth every penny. This week, my guest is Reza Aslan, who has written a marvelously controversial and popular book about Jesus. It is called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. A few weeks ago, he was interviewed by Fox News. The interviewer could not get over the fact that Dr. Aslan is a Muslim. Check it. Well, this is an interesting book. Now, I want to clarify, you're a Muslim, so why did you write a book about the founder of Christianity? Could you ask that question once again? It still begs the question, why would you be interested in the founder of Christianity? Ask the question once again, but just a little bit differently. How, how are your findings different from what Islam actually believes about Jesus? Well, the interview went viral on the interwebs, and thanks, oddly, to Fox News, the popularity of his book skyrocketed. With me via Skype from his home in California is Reza Aslan. Oh, welcome, Dr. Aslan, to Religion for Life. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. According to the old adage, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, <laughs> and that seems to be somewhat true for your book, as interest in it soared after that bizarre interview on Fox News, didn't it? It did. Well, fortunately, the book was already a, a pretty good bestseller. Uh, I think it was number four on the New York Times bestseller list, and I think it had gone all the way to number two on Amazon. But there is no question that uh, that Fox interview allowed it to be seen by a completely different audience, an audience that frankly wouldn't normally pick up a, a book about Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, well, let's take a minute with that interview. Uh, the interviewer seemed to want to say that you simply had no business writing about Jesus if you aren't a Christian, uh, that Jesus is off limits to you. Is, is that what the point uh, she was making? I think that had partly to do with it. I think we, it's also important to understand that there are segments of society in the United States um, that view anything that someone from a Muslim background does or says with suspicion. I mean, anti-Muslim sentiment in this country uh, is at unprecedented levels. And Fox News, frankly, has managed to turn it into ratings gold. I mean, they've really, over the last 10 years, uh, really brought what used to be just a fringe movement in this country into the mainstream. So I think it has as much to do with a notion that Jesus needs somehow protecting from scholars and a just kind of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment that is, it is quite prevalent uh, in certain quarters. Yeah, open societies uh, require our scholars to break open the barriers that religions use to protect uh, their religious figures. And so we need scholars like you to search for the historical Jesus and to search for the historical Muhammad as well, don't we? Yes, which I do uh, in my first book, No God But God. I mean, the irony of this, of course, and I'm not the first to bring this up, is that the vast majority of books about Islam or the Prophet Muhammad are written by non-Muslims. And indeed, uh, one only needs to watch Fox News for a few hours to see the parade of not just 
non-Muslims speaking about Islam, but really anti-Muslim zealots, people like Pamela Geller, people like Robert Spencer, whom the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center have officially designated as hate group leaders uh, are regular guests on Fox News talking about Islam. So again, I think for me, the conversation that that interview has started stopped being about me a long time ago. It's mm -hmm. now become something much larger and a much needed conversation about uh, journalistic integrity, media bias, the role of scholarship and faith, the role of religion in society. And frankly, as a scholar, you know, these are, these are the kinds of issues that my colleagues and I talk about in our dusty libraries all the time, and it's wonderful to see that it's become a part of the public dialogue in this country. Well, you know, as I've been reading uh, just a, a couple of critiques of your work on the web, I'm finding that, that some of it is is somewhat protectionist quibbling. Uh, it seems that challenging your religious motivations or challenging your credentials or challenging your scholarship are ways of dismissing what you have to say and protecting long-held, cherished readings of Jesus. Yeah, I, well, I guess that's a fair uh, assessment. I mean, there have been, you know, fair negative critiques of the book. Those are conversations that I'm willing to have. In fact, it's what I do for a living. When you mm -hmm. write about uh, religion, you're, you're writing about something that is constantly uh, debated and in flux, and particularly talking about the historical Jesus. This is a conversation that's been taking place in academia for 200 years. And so there are certainly uh, a plethora of, of opinions and differences. Um, but you're right, there is, I have to say, a, an overwhelming um, focus, if you will, uh, not so much on the content of the book, but on the, the writer um, himself. Uh, well, yeah. I, don't, I don't really know what to say about that, to be honest. It's, it's a little odd. I, I did not expect it at this level, to be, to be perfectly frank. Yeah, well, let's get this question out of the way then. How have historians and scholars of the historical Jesus responded to your work? Uh, how has your book, Zealot, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, been received by your peers? Well, I have to say, I, I think I would characterize it uh, in two major responses. The first response is a, is a gigantic yawn, <laughs> hmm. uh, as in, so what? This is all stuff that we know and that we've talked about. None of this is revelatory or new. Uh, all of this is stuff that has been talked about by scholars from John Dominic Crisson to John Meyer to uh, Richard Horsley and, uh, you know, N.T. Wright, Marcus Borg. My response to that is, well, yes, of course. I, you know, at this point, it's quite difficult to really say anything all that new about Jesus in academia. As you can imagine, this is a character that has been talked about <laughs> quite a lot. Um, my job as, a, as a, both a writer and a scholar of religions has always been to take these complex academic discussions and make them appealing and accessible to a general audience. And that's, that's what I've done. So I in no way claim that I'm uh, blazing uh, new ground uh, in the academic study of, of the historical Jesus. Though I will say I'm, I'm proud of a couple of um, conclusions that I come to, you know, in, in, in small matters that I think are, are somewhat unique and innovative. The other response um, has been a little bit more surprising, and that has been, I think, a, 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 a negative response by a number of academics who are both 
annoyed at the popular appeal of this book and so therefore say by definition it's not serious i mean if it's if it's a <laughs> I, i've been in academia long enough to know that if your book is read by more than a couple of thousand people then you're not serious as a scholar um and uh, on the flip side uh, a in a sort of a real robust discussion about um certain conclusions that i make about uh, for instance, Paul, about how to read the Gospels. Uh, and these conclusions, of course, are backed up with some 80 pages or so of notes and bibliography where I really discuss the academic um, arguments behind my conclusions, both those who disagree with me and those who agree with me. And oftentimes, because that's not in a traditional academic footnote, I think a lot of scholars are not reading them. And, and I think that that's perhaps where some of the negative critique has come from. But again, this is how academics work. We are constantly arguing with each other. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy to have that argument. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is uh, Reza Aslan, author of Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Can you give us a portrait of Jesus in a nutshell? Who, who was this guy and what was his passion? Well, I think if you take what little we can sort of zero in on uh, about the historical Jesus. And, and that's a very difficult task because really all we have at our disposal are the Gospels. And the Gospels, as many people know, are very valuable historical documents, but they are themselves not history. These are testimonies of faith written by communities of faith many years after the events that they described. To put it in its simple terms, the gospel writers already believed something about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was indeed God incarnate. And then they wrote the gospels in order to prove that belief. Scholars for centuries have figured out a methodology to, as best as we can, uh, comb through the Gospels, try to, to differentiate what is most likely historical and what is least likely historical by taking the claims of the Gospels and analyzing them in light of all we know about the world, the time and place in which Jesus lived. And so I try to do the same thing. That exercise, I think, leads to a Jesus that may be somewhat unfamiliar to a lot of Christians. Uh, it leads to a Jesus who was almost most definitely illiterate and uneducated. Mm -hmm. A Jesus who, if he was uh, what the Gospels claim he was, a tecton or a woodworker or a builder, would have been probably at the second lowest level of the social ladder in, in, in first century Palestine, just above the slaves, the indigent, and the beggar. Um, who came from a, a town, Nazareth, that is so small, so insignificant and poor that its name does not appear on any map or document before the end of the first century, um, and who was a Galilean. Uh, the, the, uh, the documents of the time, the chronicles of the time, refer to the Galileans essentially as troublemakers, as as just sort of rebels, as people who did not follow the rules and, and were, were often quite distrustful of the Judeans who were far more sophisticated, perhaps a little bit more educated, a little bit more wealthy, and who certainly had a fractious relationship with the priestly hierarchy that existed in Jerusalem. So what we do is we take all of these facts about Jesus's time and we try to create a, a personality, a biography um, out of this. And then we use the Gospels to, if you will, fill in the holes to try to create an outline, make some sense of Jesus's life. 
Uh, you understand Jesus to be really in opposition to uh, priestly stranglehold and its collaboration with Rome on the side of the poor over against the rich. Right. I mean, if you look at Jesus's relationship with the temple priests, the hierarchy that maintained a monopoly over the Jewish cult, that were essentially the gatekeepers to salvation, who decided for themselves who would have access to the Spirit of God and who wouldn't, and who, by the way, as you mentioned, were the richest Jews in in Jesus' time. These were the wealthy landowners. Uh, They were in collusion with the the Roman occupation. They were in many ways just generally loathed by, by the Jews, and particularly by poor Galileans like Jesus, who really saw them as exploiting the Jews uh, with their wealth, with their corruption and their ineptitude. In many ways, if you want to talk about who is Jesus's primary enemy, it's not the Pharisees, it's not the Sadducees, it's not the scribes, it's the temple priests. Um, And so you have to recognize Jesus's teachings as being directed against the temple priesthood precisely on behalf of those that the temple has seen as outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, the weak, the dispossessed, the sick, the lame. Uh, These were the people that Jesus fought on behalf of. And he fought them he fought on behalf of them not just against the temple priesthood, but against the, the ultimate masters of his time, and that was the pagan Roman Empire that maintained a stranglehold uh, on the Jewish nation. So did Jesus, uh, in your view, want to lead a revolution? Well, let's put it this way. You're talking about an era in which religion and politics were one and the same. There is no conception of them as two separate things. Mm-hmm. If that's the case— Simply saying the words, I am the Messiah, is a treasonable offense. Messiah means the anointed one. The principal task of the Messiah, as the descendant of King David, is to restore the the kingdom of David on earth, to usher in the rule of God. Well, if you are ushering in the rule of God, you are ushering out the rule of Caesar. So in a sense, just that statement alone makes Jesus guilty of rebellion, of sedition. And indeed, if there's one thing we know about Jesus is that he was crucified at the end of his life. Crucifixion in in first century Palestine was a punishment that Rome reserved almost exclusively for crimes against the state, treason, sedition, rebellion, insurrection. It is often mentioned that, well, weren't there two thieves who were crucified alongside Jesus? Well, not exactly. The word in Greek is lestai, which doesn't mean thieves. It actually means bandits. And it was the most common term for an insurrectionist or a rebel in Jesus's time. So I often say that if you know nothing else about Jesus except that he was crucified, you know enough to at the very least begin to question the dominant impression of him as some pacifistic preacher of good works with no interest in the cares of this world. That Jesus would have gone completely unnoticed by Rome. So one, the title of uh, your book, my guest, Reza Aslan, uh, the title of your book is Zealot, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. What do you mean when you use the word zealot in reference to Jesus? What precisely is or was a zealot? 
Yeah, this is a word, of course, that has some negative connotations in our modern parlance, but did not have those connotations, actually, in Jesus' time. Indeed, zealotry was a widespread phenomenon in first century Palestine. Many, many Jews would have proudly referred to themselves as zealot. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew Bible, all the great kings and heroes, prophets, uh, these charismatic uh, leaders were were uh, claiming to be zealous for the Lord. Zeal is a, an official biblical doctrine. It, it implies a, a commitment to the sole sovereignty of God, a refusal to serve any master except for the Lord, and an uncompromising devotion to uh, the, the Torah, the law of Moses. Many zealots in Jesus' time uh, took that idea to its logical conclusion, which is that if you, if you refuse to serve any master but God, if you believe that the Torah commands you uh, to cleanse the Holy Land of all uh, foreign elements uh, and, and, and to reserve it solely for the chosen people, then the Roman occupation was an abomination that had to be fought against. Some zealots resorted to extreme acts of violence uh, in fighting against Rome. We have their names. I talk about a lot of them. Many of them refer to themselves as Messiah. Some zealots didn't resort to extreme acts of violence, but nevertheless tried to instill revolution in the Jews, to rise up uh, and, and heed the call of God to cleanse this land of the Roman abomination. And I think that is far more where Jesus fits. I, I, I think a lot of people think that I'm talking about Jesus as some sort of violent terrorist. I, I don't know where that impression comes from. I say quite clearly in the book that there is no evidence whatsoever that Jesus openly espoused violence against Rome, though I do think that his views about violence were a little bit more complex than the sort of turn-the-other-cheek uh, celestial spirit that we often think of him as. Yeah, some people think that he might have led a nonviolent revolution, but you're saying, well, he, he might have, but he also might have taken the sword. I think of contemporary figures, he might have been more like Malcolm X than Martin Luther King. I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. I don't mean to say that Jesus was a violent figure, but we also have to understand that what we call nonviolence, the nonviolent movement, the idea that through uh, you know, civil disobedience one can change the laws and remove powers, is a wholly modern phenomenon. That idea, that conception did not exist in Jesus's time. You're talking about a brutal, bloodthirsty, oppressive uh, empire that ruled the largest empire the world had ever known and did so by dealing swiftly with the slightest uh, uh, assault, the slightest challenge to their rule. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome during Jesus's time, sent so many thousands of Jews to the cross for insurrection, for rebellion, without trial, by the way, that he was ultimately recalled from his position. In other words, even Pilate was seen as a little too violent for Rome. <laughs> that, hmm. That's how brutal a man this was. The notion that a Jew in Jesus's time would have thought that the way to remove this power is through nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, I think it is a little bit anachronistic. Uh, in fact, Jesus, you know, uh, 
when he, uh, the, the sort of the, the, the scene of Jesus' life that really precipitates his arrest, the cleansing of the temple, as I talk about in the book, uh, ends with him fleeing to the Garden of Gethsemane, which, by the way, is not a garden, is a forest. It's the kind of place you go where you want to hide out from the authorities, not the kind of place you go to have a picnic. Uh, <laughs> tells, tells his disciples, you know, before they leave, to arm themselves. He says, if you do not have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So I think, again, it's important to understand that you can not be an espouser of violence and yet still not espouse nonviolence. There is, there is something more complex going on in Jesus there. Let's talk about the movement just after Jesus' death. Uh, you show a real discontinuity in your book between the Jesus of history, Jesus the Jew, Jesus the zealot, uh, the one zealous for the poor and for social justice, to the movement that emerged and later became the church. What happened? Well, a lot happened. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound that it's just incredibly simplistic that all of a sudden uh, Jesus's followers divorced themselves from Judaism and became Christians. But there was a steady progress after Jesus's death to redefine not just his life and his mission, but the very definition of Messiah. You must understand that according to Jewish law, a crucified Messiah is by definition no longer the Messiah. It doesn't get mm -hmm. any clearer than that when one looks at the law of Moses, when one looks at the Torah, the, the prophets, you know, most, most of what has been said about the Messiah in Jewish history, tradition, scripture, and thought. For Jesus' followers, this required... A, a, a simple decision for them. Either Jesus was not the Messiah or what they understood the Messiah to be as Jews was incorrect. And spurred by this mystical experience, this claim of Jesus's resurrection, they began to redefine the nature and function of the Messiah, to make him less a political figure than a spiritual figure, to make his functions something that take place not on earth, but in the heavenly realm. The kingdom of God is itself not an earthly thing, it's a heavenly thing. And so that process starts to transform this movement um, into something different than just sort of the simple Palestinian Judaism that Jesus himself would have been familiar with. But really, the, the shift takes place after 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. It's important to understand that every word ever written about Jesus in the Gospels was written after this event after 70 AD, and that the Gospels themselves were written primarily for a Roman audience, not a Jewish audience. This is some 40 years after Jesus' death. And if you want to preach this Gospel message to Romans instead of Jews, you have to basically do three things. Number one, you have to make Jesus just a little bit less Jewish. <laughs> I don't mean mm -hmm. to be glib about this, but the truth of the matter is that you have to, if you want to convince a bunch of Romans to accept a religion founded by a poor Palestinian Jewish peasant, then what you need to do is take the Jewish context out of his teachings and turn it into abstract universal ethical principles that all people can abide by regardless 
of their ethnic or religious persuasions. Number two, you have to make Jesus just a little less revolutionary. After all, it's very hard to convince Romans to follow a, a movement uh, led by a man whose principal goal was to remove Rome from, from uh, the, the Holy Land. Um, and so you have to temper some of that revolutionary sentiment in Jesus's uh, teachings. Again, make it less about this world and more about the next world. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, you have to remove all blame from Rome for Jesus's death. It can't be the Romans who killed Jesus. It has to be the Jews who did so. And hence the steady progression that one finds from the first gospel, Mark, written in about 70, to the last gospel, uh, uh, John, written somewhere between 100 and perhaps 120 AD, uh, in which slowly and steadily, it's not Pontius Pilate or the Romans who are responsible for Jesus' death, it's the Jews. Indeed, in the Gospel of John, the Jews clamor for Jesus' blood as an entire nation, the Gospel says. Indeed, they say, may his blood be on our head and on our children's head and on our children's children's head, thus launching some 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism. We're just, just about running out of time. My guest, Reza Aslan, author of Zealot to the Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. But as I read Zealot, I thought um, of parallels between Jesus and Muhammad. Uh, both were passionate, uh, zealous for the poor, for social justice, and against religious brokerage systems that were present uh, each in uh, his own day. Do you see these two figures as having important similarities? I think that's true of all great prophets. It's certainly true of Moses, whose social teachings were all about liberation of the slaves, the poor, against the, at that time, of course, the rulers, the Egyptians. It's certainly true about Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a man who, despite his great wealth, gave up everything that he owned in order to find a means of easing the suffering for the poor and the dispossessed. I don't think that it is a coincidence that the great prophets of the world's religions were first and foremost social reformers, that their primary message was less about a new way to think about God or a new way to achieve salvation. Those messages tend to be formulated by the prophets' followers, the people who actually mm. create the religion uh, that is based on the prophet. Rather, what is most often the case when it comes to these prophetic figures is that they are there to reform the social, political, and even religious milieu of the world in which they live. They are not there to launch new religions. They are there to fix the situation in which they and the people that they are trying to serve live in. Um, and so you're absolutely right. The parallels are stark, and I don't think that they're accidental. Uh, just final question for you. What do you hope will be the takeaway for this book? What do you hope this book will do uh, for those reading it uh, regarding uh, Jesus? Well, I guess for Christians, I hope that it's a, it's a chance to learn about the other half of Jesus. <laughs> In mm -hmm. other words, if you believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, well, you need to take the fully man part more seriously. As a man, he lived in a specific time and place, and that time and place shaped who he was. His teachings have to be understood as a response to the social ills that he confronted. His actions have to be seen as a reaction to the political and religious powers of his day. If you truly want to know what this man was like, regardless of whether you also think he was God or not, you need to know about his world because that world matters. 
For non-Christians, I guess what I would say is that my hope is that people understand that Jesus is someone who is worthy of being followed, whether you are a Christian or not. That this man, who through his charisma, through the power of his teachings, uh, launched a, a movement on behalf of the poor and the outcast, who sacrificed himself uh, for those who were dispossessed and, and, and weak and sick. You may not think that he was the Messiah. You may not think that he was God incarnate. And yet he is still worth knowing. In other words, you can be a follower of Jesus without necessarily being a Christian. My guest on Religion for Life has been Reza Aslan, the author of the number one bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Thank you so much for being with me today, Dr. Aslan, and for your work. Thank you. It was, it was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck, minister of First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Again, welcome to friends in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening to Religion for Life on 89.3 KZUM. For a list of stations carrying Religion for Life, and we're making a concerted effort to add more, go to religionforlife.com. You'll find information there about upcoming shows and links to podcasts, religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia. Be well.